0: Yeah, keep your Bibles uh, where, where they are right now. Daniel 4, 4 through 27 uh, will be our text for this morning. Uh, last Sunday, we, uh, we learned uh, that chapter 4 is a letter that Nebuchadnezzar wrote and sent throughout his kingdom. In it, he describes the events that led to his conversion of faith in the Most High God. Uh, his personal testimony, if you will. That's what chapter 4 of Daniel represents. That's kind of what it is. We focus primarily on the context of the letter and his greeting in verses 1 through 3. This morning we're going to look at his second dream and its interpretation. That's what we just read. Now we do have a large section, as you're fully aware after listening to Brenda read it for about five minutes. We have a large section to cover and uh, a lot to deal with, Uh, but if you noticed, um, I think that you could just read the section a couple of times and get down what's going on there because you have like this mysterious dream and then you have Daniel's explanation. And so it's like Daniel does kind of the teaching on it, if you will. And so uh, I'm going to teach it in more of a topical fashion today. I'm going to give you ten points, and uh, and each point just represents what we see in the text. I'm breaking it up that way, and I think that'll help us get through such a large section. And like I said, I don't think it's a challenging passage to get your mind around because it's kind of self-explaining, and it's amazing how the Word of God is. Sometimes things are just very plain, but... So, oh, 10 points, you might want to be ready to write these things down, and maybe uh, this would be like my outline, and it would be a way to view this large section with these 10 points, and of course, there's a few sub-points and things. Uh, before we um, get to the first point, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge your holiness, your power, your presence this morning, uh, we humbly ask that you be merciful to us. Uh, please take the Word and the Holy Spirit and um, just transform our minds a little bit more today. Our hearts uh, sanctify us, make us a little bit more like Jesus. Um, sanctification seems to be, I guess, a slow process, and it lasts the lifetime of a saint and or at least from the moment they are saved. But we just, we just ask that you'd be merciful and gracious to us and just chip away a little bit more of, of the old man, the old sculpture, if you will, Lord, and, and just make us a little bit more like Christ. Just uh, shape our hearts a little bit more in our attitude, our disposition, our, our behavior. And so just make us like Jesus. That's, that's the goal here. And we do thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your grace. I thank you personally, Lord, for the folks that have come today. Who have come to, to worship you and, and to have some fellowship. To hear from you. To grow, to learn. It's just a great, great thing. And so, I pray blessings on this congregation here. You would uh, minister to each one uh, in a special way this morning. And, and may I, Lord... Stick to the truth and just guard my mind and heart that I would just proclaim what's in front of me, that you might be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to look at from this gigantor section is the setting Again, just want to frame it for you real quick. This is like his testimony. It'd be like you writing out your testimony and sending it to a group of people. That's what he's done. So that's the context. He's defining and describing his uh, transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into faith. And so this is the setting for the dream, if you will, what he was doing when he had the second dream. So think of it like that. We see it in verse 4. He just simply says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So what we see here is that at the time of his rule and reign, what he was doing in his life when this second dream came upon him is that he was pretty much chilling. He was chilling. He was at ease. What what does that mean? It means that his kingdom was at peace. Peace. And uh, you, you must remember that Nebuchadnezzar was a, uh, a fantastic uh, military king, if you will, and he was a conqueror and easily the most glorious and powerful king of his day. And so he went on these conquests like you couldn't believe. And at this particular uh, part in his reign, he's, he's chilling. He's not at war. He doesn't have, you know, guys on the outside of his walls trying to chip down the wall and get in there and kill him. They're chilling. There's no war, there's no attackers, there's no conquest. He is enjoying himself, if you will. No stress, uh, if you will. Prospering actually translates from the Aramaic, because this particular section was written in that unique language, it actually translates as growing green. Uh, So you get the idea of a garden, and it's a fruitful garden, uh, thinking of the one that was by our house that's kind of now dead, but they put this, the Loma, L- Loma area, you know where it is, they put in this, like, community garden, and boy, it was, it, was, it was cranking out zucchinis and tomatoes and stuff like that, and every time we walked by it, I thought, we're going to come over here and get some tomatoes, and we would walked by there, and everything was gone. Um, but, uh, and there was one guy, I'll never forget this, Rachel and I, that's on our walk path. This dude loaded up like three bags. He doesn't understand what community means he thought it was all for him. I was a little envious. Uh, But this thing, I mean, you put a little water on it, and it was just green, and I'll use a word my family makes fun of me, lush. Uh, When I say that word, they don't, it's a cheesy word, but green, growing, green, fruitful, that's the idea here. His life, his kingdom was growing green, very fruitful. And, And I would add that because of The circumstances, not being at war, not going out on conquests, kind of chilling. You know, it's like he's on vacation, if you will. He doesn't really have to go to work and all that. He's on a very extended vacation. Uh, The potential here for idleness was massive. In fact, I think that's one way to look at verse 4. The king was at ease. He was idle. Idle means to really not be doing much of anything. Uh, You know, sandbagging is a term that I like to use for that. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, it certainly can be. Uh, you know, if, if you don't keep yourself busy and, and you know, you kind of loaf around all the time, and there's plenty of loafers in America today. I'm not talking about Carl, because that's been his nickname for 20 years. He's thinking, he's, he's on me. The Lord, he's on me. He's already on me, and I haven't even looked at him. Uh, you know, you just kind of... I, I think the Scripture has kind of a reference for idle, loafing kinds of people. Uh, What's the phrase I'm thinking of here? Um, Somebody help me. What's the word for a person uh, that really is inactive and doesn't do much? Well, that would be our term, a couch potato. I I can't find that in Scripture, but there's there's some phrases that are used in Scripture to describe one that that is inactive and, and doesn't really do much. Slothfulness—that could be it. Yeah, something like that. Okay, I'm just waiting for it to pass. And so he was idle, and uh, I was reminded immediately of—I of, uh, believe it's a proverb, Proverbs sixteen twenty-seven, in, in different translations. In the ESV, it doesn't say it like this, but there's an actual translation called the Living Bible. And it translates Proverbs sixteen twenty seven as idle hands are the devil's workshop. Which means that idleness, if you don't have your time filled with productivity and things, that that's, that's a perfect opportunity for you to be led into various kinds of temptation. You know, slothfulness can produce the kind of temptation. And you can just go off into all sorts of different things. And, uh, and then, of course, I was reminded of King David. Uh, you might know the story. I think it's in First Samuel 11, uh, where he was idle. You know, his kingdom was at war, and he should have been out fighting on the battlefield or leading his commander and Joab and them. And he was at back at his kingdom, being slothful, being idle, sandbagging. Goes out on the balcony, a balcony. He sees an amazing, gorgeous woman bathing. Uh, apparently, the bathtubs and showers were on roofs back then, and uh, he's out on his balcony parapet, if you will, veranda, I don't know what you call it, but he's looking out and he sees this gorgeous woman and starts lusting after her, he sends for her, he sleeps with her, she's the wife of one of his military leaders, Uriah, I believe, and has an affair, she gets pregnant, he's got to hide it, he can't, he ends up having Uriah killed, I mean the, the progression from idleness to full-blown murder and then to the ultimate issue was kingdom division his own son rose up against him Absalom later on and you know took the throne from him I mean it was just a mess and and so in a similar way I think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was kind of idle he wasn't walking around on his balcony staring at guys wives that were bathing but you know inactivity you have the idea of just kind of kicking back and all that and so that's what he's doing that's what's going on that would be the setting And that's verse 4. Second, we have the frightening effect. Okay, verse 5. Here's what happened when he's kind of idle and kicking back and chilling and enjoying himself. He says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. That made me afraid as I lay in bed, the fancies. Isn't that funny? Do, do Do we use that phrase? I fancy chocolate. Uh, As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So, so this, you know, he's, he's chilling, he's at ease, he's growing green, maybe he's a tad bit idle, he likes to loaf around on the bed and chill, he's probably got a sleep number, they had him back then apparently, right, tempur he's chilling, and he has these little dreams and these little daydreams and these visions and these things, this is what's going on here, and he has one in particular that literally frightens him. We would translate that in our language as it scared the heck out of him. And it just, the first dream, when he had that, we read about that in chapter 2, verse 1. The first dream that he had, which was mysterious and crazy and kind of weird too, he couldn't get his mind around that one. That troubled his spirit and it caused his sleep To leave him, but there the idea isn't so much as a fear thing, it's just a perplexity, it's a confusion. And so he kept trying to figure out what the dream was about and it kept him up at night. Well, now we see that the second dream had a kind of a different, more impactful effect on this poor guy it made him afraid, Uh, it, it alarmed him, and we'll see why in a moment. So that's the second thing. The third thing, and some of these are smaller than others or quicker than others, if you will. The third thing is the desperate decree. So he has the dream and then he produces the desperate decree. Verses 6 through 7a. He says, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, comma. Now this is a total repeat of chapter 2, verse 2, right? The king has a perplexing dream, pardon me, can't figure it out. This one frightens him, scares the snot out of him, and what does he do? What did he do the first time in chapter 2? He called his entire Babylonian wise man counsel team to himself to try to figure out what's going on he does the exact same thing here now what happened in chapter 2 when he did that could they produce and describe the dream and provide him with an interpretation no in fact he got so ticked off at him he said I'm basically going to have all you killed because you couldn't even do your job What what do I have you on payroll for so he's repeating what he did before, and I thought, well, some people just never learn. And then I realized, um, all people just never learn. You know the saying, some people never learn? We, you know, we see something, oh, there goes Fred, he's doing it again, it's going to have this effect on him, and we're critical, and we laugh, and we scoff, and ha <laughs> ha, some people never learn. But then I thought, I couldn't say that about Fred, because I never learn certain lessons for whatever reason. And he's just kind of going back to what he did before. And it's astonishing to me. It's been so many years now since then. How did he not know whom to go to right off the bat or whatever? Why would he go back to these guys? And of course, number four, we see a repeat of chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, right? And I told them the dream. And see, this time he tells them the dream before he made them figure it out. I told them the dream, but they, all his wise men, could not make known to me its interpretation, 7b. Now this is just a repeat of chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The wise men once again failed to give the interpretation. But as I said, this time Nebuchadnezzar actually described the dream to them, giving them the insights and the heads up. Here's what it was. Now tell me what it means. They couldn't even come up with that. And I just thought, why would this guy, why would this king, great, powerful, majestic, glorious, rich beyond anything that we could imagine, why would somebody like him keep people like them on payroll? Why would he keep people like that employed? Why would he, that's his inner circle, man. That's his elder board, if you will. I just was pondering that. Why would you keep guys around? They fail you over and over and over, so much so that the first time you wanted to kill them all for failing you. Then I started thinking about it. I thought, you know what? They remind me of people in the church today, those ear-tickling ministers that pretty much spend all their time saying what people want to hear. There's no substance Or authority or anything really good behind what they do but they say what people want to hear right they make those promises of your best life now and really their words are chaff and useless and they have no power because they have not the holy spirit and yet these guys lead the largest churches in our nation and have the largest houses in our nation and Are just beyond wealthy. It's unbelievable. And I thought, well, how do they stay in this thing? They're as as literally as helpful as these wise men, which means they're not. And yeah, people exalt these leaders and keep them in power and in in a place of influence and employed because people keep feeding the machine. They want to hear and they want their ears tickled and they want to be told that you know, the, the rainbow's on the other side and everything's going to be great and Jesus promises you total health, wealth, and prosperity and all of that, just surrender to him and make sure you keep those checks rolling. I think he probably kept these guys on staff because they were really good with their words and keeping this guy thinking that they were actually helpful or being a real blessing. The inability of the wise men demonstrates, literally demonstrates the limit and folly of human wisdom to comprehend spiritual truth apart from God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. What, What Paul says there is that the person who does not have the Holy Spirit, who is not saved, the unbeliever, he can't comprehend the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit must interpret and break down and and help us understand and empower us to understand God's truth. And this second dream, like the first one, was a revelation from God. And so these wise men were unregenerate, unbelieving, astral God worshiping, American type folks that didn't have the Spirit. So, of course, they can't understand. It's like they're blocked. He tells them plainly what the dream is, and they're like, blah, 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 blah. because it's, it needs to be spiritually discerned, because it is a truth coming from God. Jesus said that God had hidden the truth from the wise and prudent, revealed the truth unto babes. Matthew eleven twenty five, 25. And this has the idea of God withholding and literally blocking the wise Folks, the worldly wise of our world, from actually understanding and comprehending. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, the unbelieving world also is ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 <laughs> Timothy 3 7. You know, the, the, it's not that the world isn't educated, there are uh, brilliant people in the world that have absolutely no sense of God's truth. Which, at the end of the day, means that they aren't brilliant about the things that they should be brilliant about, the things that truly matter. Which is the existence of God, the knowledge of God, the glory of God, God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Man's true position of being totally depraved and lost and dead spiritually Ephesians 2 you know we're saved by grace through faith those are the things that's the knowledge that saves and that's the knowledge that truly matters arithmetic is fine if you want to become an engineer and get a good paycheck but arithmetic will not land you in heaven it will not knit you to the god of the universe only the gospel of Jesus Christ that knowledge That transformation will do it. And so these guys failed. Why did they fail? Were they stupid? No, I'm sure these guys were really, really smart and highly educated. But they did not have the spirit of truth. They did not know God's word. They could not break this dream down. And you know what? If there be any man or woman in this room who does not have the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a really hard time trying to figure this out too. Maybe after I explain it you'll understand a little bit better, but by tomorrow you will have gone back to whatever and forgotten we have, we've got to have the spirit. So, the failed attempt, number four. Number five, the last resort. Ha <laughs> ha! Right? Verses eight through nine. And look at, look at how he expresses himself here. Remember, he's writing this. At last! <laughs> right? It's like you're out on the ocean and you've been wading water for two hours because your sailboat went down and you see something in the distance that can rescue you. And you say, At last! there's a lifeboat or whatever he says at last Daniel came in before me like I've just been waiting for this he who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and that was his God prior to his conversion and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods what is he talking about And I told him the dream. So Belshazzar, Daniel comes in before him. At last he comes in. And I told him the dream saying, Oh, Belshazzar, chief of the uh, magicians. I was going to say musicians. um, That would have been King David. Chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that no mystery, no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." Of course, if you have an investigative mind like me, you want to know why Daniel went last. Because, right, we saw what happened in chapter 2. Of course, that was like, you know, 20 years earlier. So there's some time there. But I thought, why did he go last? Well, it could be that Daniel was unavailable at that time. It could be that he was out of town. I mean, he was the chief of the magicians, right? He was like... The big dog. And and it could be that he was indisposed. It could be that he was out of town. It could be that he was doing something. I don't know. It could be that Nebuchadnezzar was actually giving the wise men, the rest of his council, a second chance. Okay, you guys totally chalked it the first time around. It's been 20 years. Here's your shot again. It could be that. It could be that. You know, before he maybe he turns to Daniel, his trusted servant. Or it could be, as some commentators try to say, and I don't think this is even remotely accurate, but um, it could be that he had forgotten about Daniel over the years. I suppose that's a possibility, but when you serve as the chief of you know, magicians in the king's court every day for 40 years... I don't think that you forget about... It'd be like me working with Carl for 20 years. and Who's that? Coming into work and having no clue as to who he is. Or forgetting about some unique characteristic about him or some ability that he has. That would just be lunacy. So I don't know if that's feasible. I don't think it is. For whatever reason, he called upon him last. And I think that it was because he was indisposed or maybe he was giving those other guys a second chance. Now, the king believed that Daniel's special gift, his, his ability of interpretation, was tied to the spirit of the holy gods, which was in him. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says. I know you can do it because of this, Daniel. Now, the Aramaic word, again, written in Aramaic, the Aramaic word for gods is... Elohim. Almost sounds like Elohim. Or what is the other one? What am I thinking of, Paul? Elohim? Yeah. So it's a little different. It's a variation of that. So it translates as Elohim, which means gods, plural, lower G, or God, big G, non-plural. So it can be translated as gods or God. And I'm not sure exactly why the translators went with the plural lower g version here i'm not sure i didn't even do the research to find out if they all do that but in the esv it translates as as gods and i think and i actually agree with john macarthur that the better rendering would be the spirit of the holy god not a plural thing it would be the spirit of the holy god Throughout the years of of his association, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's association with Daniel, uh, he came to recognize that the Spirit of God dwelt in him. That's a, a biblical or theological truth that Nebuchadnezzar actually was able to form and to come up with after years and years and years of being influenced to him. He believed that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, was in Daniel. It was clear that Daniel served a different God than the wise men, right? Because the deities of the Babylonians were not holy. Most of the time, I'd I'd probably go out on a limb and say every time, but I don't know of of pagan deities that are referred to as holy. it's, it's 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 a Hebrew thing. It's a biblical thing. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't a lot of false gods out there and and idols. There are, but rarely, if ever, are any of them ever referred to as holy, meaning being set apart, being uniquely different from all and all that. I mean, quite frankly, idols and false gods, they're representations of the men who create them. And men are not holy, and men don't typically think of themselves as holy. Maybe self-righteous or something like that, but holiness is different. So this... Long-term relationship and discipleship and influence that Daniel had on this great king caused the king to develop a bit of a theology in that he understood that Daniel had the Holy Spirit or that the spirit of Daniel's God who was most high and holy was in him. I think it's pretty fascinating that you know, throughout all those years of working with Nebuchadnezzar and serving him that Nebuchadnezzar I mean, if you look at the book of Daniel, it seems like Nebuchadnezzar and his ways had very little impact on Daniel, but Daniel's ways and beliefs had massive impact on Nebuchadnezzar. Well, that's discipleship 101. that's, That's evangelism. That's what we're to be about. When we rub elbows with the world, we're not supposed to take on ourselves the worldly values and thinking and practices that the world engages in, but we are to influence the world and you know, kind of like that time that the guy we work with, and I don't know how this worked for me, because I always think I'm the most pathetic example to people, but remember that story I told you about how his, I think it was a grandmother or his mother-in-law or somebody, I don't remember who it was, it was Donald at, at, at Carl's place, was dying and he wanted me to come pray, and he says, you're the only holy man I know. And I said, well, thanks for the compliment, uh, if you only knew. Uh, but that is the rubbing shoulders and elbows with him and talking with him over time and trying to live a certain way and apologizing when I blew it. And he just thought of me as the only holy man he knew. You know, Daniel's, isn't that weird? I always get kind of just, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I should be floating by now or something. And I've I'm, I'm still got these lead feet as if holy men floated. But Daniel had that kind of consistent influence. And, and this guy was learning to some degree. He had a sense. Could he understand divine truth the way that he should have? No, because he couldn't get this dream. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. But he understood things about Daniel's God. Holy. There's a Holy Spirit? What are you talking about, Daniel, that comes and resides in you? I've never heard of that. That's a pretty interesting uh, thing. In fact, who was it? It was Simon the magician in the book of Acts who wanted that so badly for his own personal gain. Peter told him to take a hike. He said, may you be destroyed with your attitude and all that stuff. Number six... The king describes his dream, verses 10 through 18. Okay, this is broken up into two parts. A, you have the tree. That's verses 10 through 12. Visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heavens or to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. It's a big tree. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And it was food for all. Uh, The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. It's kind of the first part of his dream. It has to do with this amazing tree Reminded again of when Rachel and I do our walks, there's this oak tree in the middle of La Loma uh, Junior High Campus, out in the middle of the field. It's the only tree out there. And it is probably the largest oak tree I have ever seen. That thing's got to be 15 foot around. It is massive. And, and here the king has this dream and vision of this massive, far-reaching tree, this huge, huge tree. Now, this is the first part of his vision, and I I do not believe that this part of his vision caused him any alarm, any fear, any trouble at all. It may have even bolstered his pride, built up, expanded, fed his pride, his self-view, his self-exaltation and And self-sufficiency, it may have have helped to bolster his pride, to build him up in his pride as he envisioned himself as the tree who provides bountifully for all his subjects in his realm. You see, that's why I believe Nebuchadnezzar had some fear over this vision, because I think he envisioned himself as this great tree. And of course, the fear comes in later when we find out what happens to the tree. But at first, he gets the first part of the vision. He's thinking, I think I'm the tree. I am big. I am far-reaching. I am powerful. I am all this and a bag of Lay's potato chips. First part, the tree. Second part, B, the messenger. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven. Watcher or holy one refers to a heavenly messenger. What do we call heavenly messengers? Angels, right? God's servants, angels, angelic beings, seraphim, right? cherubim, angels. As the king was pondering this massive, glorious tree and then paralleling himself with it like What are you trying to tell me, God? Am I the tree? I think I'm the tree because I got everything that the tree has. As he's pondering this tree and himself, putting himself in place of the tree, he sees an angel descend from heaven and begin to speak. Okay, now we're talking revelation. We're talking a message from heaven. And I lied. There's there's more facets to this. You have C, the sentence... The sentence, okay, remember, we're talking about him describing his dream. We had A, the tree, B, we have the messenger. Now we have C, the sentence. Verses 14 through 17a, here's what the angel said. He proclaimed aloud, uh, said thus, and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then 17a, wow. The this, uh, this sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Wow. So the angel comes and proclaims aloud as he's gazing at the tree and putting himself in place of it, the angel comes down and says that the tree is to be cut down. And not just that, but the branches are to be trimmed from the trunk. So basically what you have left now is like a pole. You've got a telephone pole left. The leaves are to be stripped off, and the fruit is to be removed and scattered. The animals and birds that found shelter under it and in its branches were to also scatter. In other words, the provision of the tree would be removed and the animals that were getting the provision there would be scattered and leave. And also, the stump was not to be removed, but secured with bands of iron and bronze. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar envisioned himself as the tree, the second part of the vision, right, verses 13 through 15a, must have disturbed him greatly. If he was the tree he was to be what? Cut down. So this is probably where he starts to not really appreciate, like, value the dream, right? Or now he does what we all do in our human nature. Well, I, I knew, I, I kind of thought I was the tree, but I'm fairly certain now I'm not, because I wouldn't be cut down, right? Right? Now the third part of the vision, verses 15b and 16, they're all contained in the sentence, that portion would have absolutely terrified him. Not only was he to be cut down, but he would also lose his sanity, right? The mind of this tree or the man that's mentioned here would be removed and replaced with that of a beast. And so this third facet, this third component of this Dream the the losing of one's mind, the madness that would come, this the sanity and, and and actually living and living out amongst the animals. I tell you what, that would have absolutely terrified him. I think that's why it says he was afraid in verse five. If I'm the tree, then I'm glorious. I'm amazing. This is really good. You know, he's knocking the dust off his shoulders. He's making it rain. He's doing all those dumb things. And then all of a sudden, it's to be cut down. Okay, that's not good. Wait a minute. It's to be trimmed all up where there's nothing left. And then wait a minute. The tree's actually not a tree. It's a person. And that person's going to lose his mind and become a grass-sucking antelope. If I'm the tree and the man, this is really bad. This is why he's afraid. This is why he's, oh, he's wondering, is this about me? Does this apply to me? He's freaking out. And not only that, it says for seven periods of time. For whatever reason, God likes the number seven. He uses that. He uses the number 40 pretty regularly in Scripture, too. What is seven periods of time? It's got to be seven years. It couldn't be seven hours or seven days or seven weeks, as some try to say, because if you read a little further, he had. Like, really long hair and a scraggly beard and long, nasty fingernails and all that. And, you know, mine grow pretty fast. But, you know, it's not happening in seven days or even seven months. Well, my fingernails would probably be pretty ghastly at seven months, but I don't think my hair would be much longer. I know Carl's wouldn't be. Um, I had to get you. (laughs) Uh, So seven years. This is going to go on for seven years. Years. This is crazy. This is insane. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Seven years. Let's see. What else? Verse 17a says, The holy ones. Okay, we just read a moment ago, a holy one came and declared, and now it's plural. Okay, so so what does that mean? That means that God summoned many angels to come and witness against the tree of verse 14, which is the hymn of verse 15. So these angels are almost like God's attorneys in a sense, that they've come to declare the sentence. Not just one, but a whole bunch of angels have come down and proclaimed this sentence upon this tree, which is actually a person. And as I said, I think Nebuchadnezzar was able to put some of this stuff together, and he he started to wonder if it was him, and that's why he became filled with fear and alarmed. Okay, and then D, the goal, here's the goal of, uh, we would call it the goal of the vision and the goal of this future prophetic event. Verse 17b, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom. He will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So the goal of the vision or future event, if you will, was to communicate God's sovereign authority over earthly kings and kingdoms. That's the whole purpose of this event. That's the whole purpose of this vision. The hymn of verse 15 would be made to realize that he has a pride problem you got an issue, man, with self-exaltation and and self-reliance, self-glory. Yeah, 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 totally, man. The hymn of verse 15 would be made to realize he's got a a pride problem, or what I would call a God complex. Okay, you remember what we talked about a while ago, the golden statue that he put up? It, It didn't just represent his deities, back then the ancient kings thought of themselves as gods on earth. This guy, it's not just that he has pride, which we all do, it's that his pride reached a level of just, to me, there's the true insanity, where you are so into yourself that you think you're actually a god. Or at least your own god. Totally autonomous, you have your own power, your own ability, you can do everything on your own, you don't need anyone else. You don't need a deity. This vision and future event, this prophetic event, was meant to reveal that there's a pride problem here, that there's a God complex, and the absolute sovereign truth that the Most High will not tolerate it or share His glory with anyone else. That's the purpose. I don't know about you, last time I checked, trees don't interact and do much, and they certainly don't have a propensity to pride. So we know for a fact that this is not a tree that we're talking about. This is a person. The bottom line, the Most High, the Sovereign God, is the one, and that's the whole purpose of this whole chapter, really, The sovereign God is the one who appoints earthly rulers, the lowliest of men and women, that's what it says. It says men there, but that's a universal term because you do have queens and things, okay? The sovereign God, the Most High, is the one who appoints earthly rulers, the lowliest of men and women, to rule over earthly kingdoms. Earthly rulers who pridefully reject God as sovereign ruler and fail to honor Him as such will experience... His judgment. His sentence. American presidents included. <laughs> okay? they're earthly rulers. And I would say Barack Obama and, and Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and all the rest of them, take heed. Yeah, people don't take this stuff serious. Nebuchadnezzar certainly didn't seven, the king's second request. He's already basically asked Daniel to interpret it, but after Daniel, you know, after he kind of describes his dream, he's scared even more so, and now he's beginning to plead. Oh, tell me its meaning. Look at this in verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. This is my dream. I'm telling you what my dream was, Okay. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. He's pleading with him. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. And he's pleading with him now. They all failed me. And I'm thinking that Daniel could have said, well, didn't you learn like 25, 30 years ago, man? Well, that's not Daniel's style. It would have been mine, unfortunately. He's pleading with him now. Come on, here's my dream. It's freaking me out. 8, Daniel shows compassion. Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. At this point, if I was Nebuchadnezzar, I would have said, okay, you don't have to tell me the dream. That sounds like it's really, really bad, and it's meant for me if you're trying to say that it should be for my enemies. In chapter 2, Daniel did not hesitate to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. There was no pause. When he had the opportunity, he stepped forward, and you know, after praying and God being merciful and revealing, and he went right to Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew that he, his life and others' lives were in the balance there, but he didn't do it out of fear. He just, there was nothing there to cause him to be alarmed or to be hesitant at all. It was easy for him to to step before the king and the king's court, again, the mightiest person on on the face of the earth at the time, to stand before this guy and to do it because the first dream exalted Nebuchadnezzar. He was the head of gold. Remember? Chapter 2, verse 38. Daniel had... No hesitancy, hesitancy at all to just step before the king and say, this is, is kind of cool, you're the head of gold. You're, you're pretty, pretty impressive there. Of course, the stone's going to break it all down, but you know, it's pretty cool. He didn't have a problem with that. But here he hesitates with the second dream. Why? Because it debased the king. Daniel was so bothered by the divine revelation and the divine sentence that he became dismayed, translates as worried, He was anxious. He was worried. And and, and it's, what does it say here? For a while, which means not for an hour or two or for five minutes or 10 minutes. This might've gone on for several days, maybe even a week or two. We don't know for sure, but it wasn't, you know, instant. He was troubled for many, many days. When the king saw Daniel's reluctance, when he noticed that Daniel was like, you know, kind of being sheepish and well, you know, I'll get around to it. He encouraged Daniel not to be alarmed, but to share its meaning with him. Daniel respectfully stated that he wished the dream pertained to the king's enemies. You know, I, I, this is a bad situation, king, and I, I don't pray it for you. Now It's very obvious that Daniel cared about the king. And the question is, do we care about our earthly rulers? Are we compassionate when we speak of them? (laughs) Do we pray for them? I tell you, I spend more time cursing them. I don't have the heart of Daniel most of the time. Do you? You know, these presidents and people do things, and senators and congressmen and foreign leaders and stuff do things that just drive me up the wall and... Prayer isn't, you know, for them, and intercession isn't usually the thing that comes to mind. Uh, Maybe slander would be, or what an idiot, or derogatory statements. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was by no means any better than any of these rulers that we have today. He was pagan. He was godless prior to writing this letter. And yet, look at the compassion here. Man, I don't wish this upon you, king. I mean, he actually loved his king. He actually got down the New Testament, New Testament scriptures and stuff that talk about, like in First Peter and stuff, talk about submitting to authority and praying for authority and those sorts of things. You know, he, he was that kind of believer, man. You know, and what are we doing? I don't know. I was convicted when I, when I realized that he wanted the best for this king. Because what was coming for this king was was horrific. That's Daniel's compassion. Number nine, Daniel interprets the second dream, verses 20 through 26. This is broken up into several components here. A, the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) It's just plain. Verses 20 through 22. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches uh, the birds of the heavens lived it is you you are the hem o king who have grown and become strong your greatness has grown and it reaches to the heavens or to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Man, this far-reaching, glorious, mighty tree that provides food and sustenance and and shelter, and it's magnificent in its size. You know, it's like that oak tree that Rachel and I marvel at all the time, but so far beyond that, it's far-reaching because his kingdom and influence was far-reaching. It's all about you, O Nebuchadnezzar. You're the tree. You're the man. Reminds me of... Of uh, Nathan, the prophet Nathan with with King David. When King David got in the whole Bathsheba thing I described to you earlier and Nathan looks at him and tells him a story about a lamb that was taken from a family and sacrificed and all this stuff. It was a heart-wrenching thing. David was irate and Nathan looks him in the eyes and says, you're the man that took that, that family member, that little ewe lamb and you're the one that killed it for your guests. You're the man. That's what... It, Nathan the prophet tells David, and David's like, oh, I'm the man? Well, this is the same thing playing out right here. Daniel's like, you're the tree. Okay? So he's the tree. B, the sentence is against Nebuchadnezzar. Verses 23 through 24. So it's not just that Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. It's that the sentence is for him. 23 through 24, and because the king saw a watcher, this is Daniel again, interpreting a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots. I love how Daniel abbreviates, just destroy it. He didn't talk about stripping and all that. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the do of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon you, my lord, the king. There was no doubt in Nebuchadnezzar's mind at this point. He had pondered whether or not he was the tree, and now it was completely clear. Verses 25 through 26 describe a fourfold judgment with a promise on the end. These will go quickly. First, expulsion. Okay, that means to be removed. Anyone here ever been expelled from school? (laughs) That's not something that people are quick to shoot their hands up over, but they'll go, yeah, yeah, I blew it like that. Yeah, I've been suspended, but I didn't get myself to the expulsion level. Although I think that's an act of God's grace and mercy because I certainly should have because uh, I won't say. <laughs> I just realized that you know, it's just irrelevant. Verse 25a, that you shall be driven from among men. Uh, this means to be removed from your throne. To be taken from your position and expelled from your palace and from your kingdom. Secondly, isolation, verse 25b, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. Now, total isolation would mean that there's no beasts of the field there. But what I mean by isolation is that there's no human contact. You're not going to be hanging around with people. The wise men that you have, they're gone. Those lovely wives or wife, not with you. Children, no. None of that. You're going to be isolated, man. You're going to be out there. The only thing you're going to have around you is a bunch of mules and, you know, and cows and whatever. Third, Madness 25C, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. (laughs) This is not a metaphor. This is not an analogy. He would literally lose his mind and become like the beasts who are his new best friends. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. You know how animals are out there in the pasture and they're moping around, and you know it gets to be about this time of the year, you got the dew and you got the moisture in the air, and they're laying in the grass and the wet, moist grass, and they've got that glistening dew on them. This is him. Dude's going to be walking on all fours, chewing cud. That's a special kind of madness. In fact, my wife and I were talking about it, and she says, I think that's the worst part of this whole judgment, this whole sentence, is to lose your mind. No rational uh, ability or capabilities, no intellect, nothing. You are like a beast. And let me tell you something right now. Pride turns men into beasts. Not just the judgment of God. We are beasts when we are filled with this self-love and self-promotion and pride. That's the most beastly thing you can do. That's a a madness of our sinful nature to think that we are equal to or better than God. And he was going to lose his mind because of it literally Uh, for humiliation verse 25 d and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will this just has to do with being humiliated to the point of coming to your senses which is also an act of God's grace by the way because he could leave him as a farm animal is the chapter the section titled in your bible does it say the humiliation of nebuchadnezzar somewhere in there yeah the goal is humiliation not the kind that we do to each other at parties where we make fun of somebody like i just did with carl a minute ago here i don't what did i say to you he's never going to have his hair back or whatever that's kind of like a friendly humiliation carl knows i'm insecure and that's why i do it um This is like total and absolute being stripped of dignity and everything to the point where you are absolutely, just think about what people who are close to him and who serve, this is the king, think of what they thought of him, if they knew where he was and what he was doing. Oh, by the way, I'm going to go out and feed Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, he's getting mad. This is total and absolute humiliation, you know? You know? If he was a heifer, I gotta go milk him. That just got really awkward. No idea where this stuff comes from. <laughs> what? Science? No. Not. Oh, what am I? He- what would I be milking then? A milk cow. Why did I say heifer? What is a heifer? Is it a male? Oh, it's a baby. Okay, that would be like milking veal. Okay, I don't know. It didn't come from science. Uh, Some of the stuff that just comes in, and and it doesn't even even work. Humiliation, total humiliation. Like me right now, not using the right phrase. Uh, And then the promise that is hanged on the end. It's just hanging and dangling. This is beautiful. There's something to this horrific sentence. There's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a ray of hope here at the end, and it's restoration. Verse 26, and... As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. The fact that the stump was not to be uprooted, uh, but was to be secured and left in the field, verse 15, right, indicates that the king would be restored to his throne. However, the restoration would not take place until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that heaven rules. It's not going to happen until you realize that, that God is sovereign. That'd be the way to look at that. And lastly, number 10, Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar to repentance, verse 27. Therefore, okay, he's told him the dream. He's freaked out. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Okay, Here's what the dream means, here's the sentence, this is what's coming upon you, and here's what I would suggest you do. Here is my counsel to you. And, and, and it's, it's almost like Daniel saying, I pray thee that you would take it with the right heart and attitude. Listen to what I'm saying, I'm not being critical, I'm not judging you, I'm just telling you. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel concluded by exhorting the king to renounce his sins. This points out the principle that any announced judgment may be averted if there is repentance. And if you don't believe that it's possible to avert the sentence and judgment of God through repentance, then you need to go read the book of Jonah. Over and over and over, and pretty much all of Scripture Daniel urged Nebuchadnezzar to turn from his sinful pride and produce fruits of righteousness, doing what is right and being kind to the oppressed, acts which stem from a heart that is submissive to the true God, to the Most High God. Had Nebuchadnezzar done so, he would have averted his seven years of expulsion and isolation and Total and absolute madness and humiliation. And as you read along, you see that that's not what he did. He didn't take Daniel's counsel to heart. Closing, I want you to walk away with three things from this message as I close it up. Number one, all people are prideful. Okay, you you can look at Nebuchadnezzar and you can say what you want about him and what a dummy and he just didn't get it and all that and what a fool and how could someone do what he did and how could someone think like that and and that would be the most pharisaical thing, self-righteous sort of legalistic kind of nasty, ugly thing that you could think or say because what you're doing is you're neglecting the fact that you are as prideful as he is. Now you just may not have the foundation that he had with all the finances and all that to take it to the highest level, but there isn't a person in this room, including myself, who hasn't thought of themselves as the most important person in the universe and as kind of a godlike figure. I mean, we've all, we all have pride, and this nation says that's the most important thing about you. Your pride is what's most important. you got gay pride, you got every form of pride there is. It's all being communicated and shoved down our throats. And what's most important is you. And pride, you know, I I was willing to go as far as, and then I stopped at losing my pride. Then you stop just short of grace and mercy. (laughs) Because pride is the antithesis of it. We are all prideful. Not just Nebuchadnezzar, not just earthly rulers. We are all prideful. We are all prideful self-glorifying self-focused self-sufficient that's the definition of pride from scripture we're all about self we really are i love what charles spurgeon said he said the demon of pride was born with us it will not die one hour before us what he's saying is that we're all prideful we all have that demonic fleshly prideful spirit about us and guess what it ain't going anywhere Even if you're a saved Christian, it's still there. You're still going to have to fight it and wrestle with it and deal with it until the day that you breathe your last breath and go off into the presence of the Lord. That's the time that it's finally dealt with. But you are going to struggle with, I am going to struggle with pride my whole faith walk, my whole life. So we are all prideful. Second, God punishes pride. Verses uh, 14 through 25 make this lucidly clear. God was about to strip the most powerful and glorious earthly king of Daniel's day of his station, right, his throne, and his sanity mind. Why? Because of pride. (laughs) And and, and what we do as believers, we we, we say to ourselves, well, that's not going to happen to me because I'm a believer. Oh, really? Do we not understand that God's judgment is reserved for prideful unregenerate people but God also disciplines his people when they're prideful. In fact, I would think that God tolerates less pride amongst his people than he does those that aren't. That's a double offense to him when we as Christians well up with pride and think that we're all ed and and be, you know, view other people in a in a in a way that's unholy and ungodly and we compete with God or whatever it is that we do in our pride. God punishes pride. That's just a fact. And we see an example of that in Scripture here. And don't think that because you're a believer, you will escape his discipline if you're prideful. You will not. I think he tolerates it less with his own people. So he punishes it. And third, God is merciful. Verse 27, break off your sins. That is a call to mercy. I will be merciful upon you if you break off your sins. What does he continue to say? He says a few other things about practicing righteousness which have to do with having the right heart and knowing that someone's connected to God. But then he says that there may, you break off your sins, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God is merciful. But we must be willing to acknowledge our pride, to confess our pride, to battle and to fight our pride, to turn it over to Jesus. And if we're not a believer, we need to turn to Jesus right off the bat. Only He can deal with our pride issue and cleanse us of pride by His blood. God is merciful. Mercy is, it, it just, It's hung right on the back end of this. It's part of Daniel's counsel. To me, it's astonishing. But as I said, Nebuchadnezzar did not heed God's warning here, and he suffered the consequences for doing so for seven years. We mustn't presume, friends. We mustn't presume upon the Lord by thinking that God will delay his judgment or discipline against us if we remain unrepentant. See, because of grace and all that good stuff in the Scripture, we presume that God's not going to discipline us. He's not going to bring back around for us the stuff that we've been sowing. Yeah, He will. Especially so because God disciplines those whom He loves. Don't presume that I can just remain in this pride or this sort of sin and and I'm okay because I, I believe in Jesus. Don't presume upon the Lord in that way. The time to act is now. It's always now. Whenever you hear the Lord's correction, you're not supposed to say, Well, I think I'll deal with that in a week or two. You could be out grazing in a field. Then how are you gonna deal with it? I'm not saying that, you know, this is this is Nebuchadnezzar's deal. I'm not saying that this is a standard issue discipline for those who have pride, that we all become land animals heifers that can't be milked I got it I'm just telling you it's not a blueprint for every time that God judges his people or whatever I'm just telling you that God doesn't mess around and when we hear his instruction especially as believers the time to act is now don't presume grace 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 no in God's grace is a provision for discipline The calling of God has all of that packed into it. His grace, His mercy, it's all there. And so I say, deal with your sin. If you have pride or whatever, deal with it right now. Don't let another moment, don't presume and go, let it go another moment. As it is written, lastly, in Acts three nineteen through 20, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord.